0: Hold on. I'm not sure what it was. (laughs) Okay. Um, Well, we're talking about Reformed theology. Um, What it means to be Reformed beyond just TULIP. Um, And we're going to talk about um, what TULIP is, if you're not familiar with that. Although I think that most of you are probably familiar. Um, But if not, we'll we'll cover that and talk about it. Um, First, let's pray. I I went upstairs and talked to... um, You know, Dean and Dylan are out of town, so I went upstairs. And Boston Hampton is in charge of youth for tonight. (laughs) And so I went up there and talked to him, and he's asked if we needed any help. And he said, just pray for us. So we're going to pray, but we're also going to pray for them as (laughs) as they get ready to do youth. So, Father, thank you for this day. Uh, Thank you for giving us the opportunity uh, to come. And tonight, think about your church and your people and how you've uh, called them and formed them according to your word um, over the centuries. And, um, helping us think through our place in that and, and what it means for us to be uh, reformed Christians, Christians who are reformed according to the scriptures um, in the 21st century. So we thank you uh, for giving us the opportunity. We also pray for the youth and we pray for Boston and Noah and Will and Maddie and all those um, working with them today that you would uh, guard them and protect them And Dean and Dylan's absence. We also pray for Dean and Dylan as they travel in Orlando. Um, would you give them safe travels and a, a relaxing work trip as they um, get some ideas and uh, renew themselves there in Orlando. Um, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to talk about this, this is going to be mostly history um, but hopefully, d- depending on where we, where we get it, but my original intention was to spend like 20-30 minutes on this and then I started putting the notes together and it kind of ballooned and so um, this this is going to be mostly a history lesson, mostly kind of thinking through some broad concepts. Um, next week will be very very scripture intensive, um, and so if if we can get to some of that this week, we will. Which, but I'm not sure if we if we will or not. But um, to start off, you know, talking about reform theology and what it means to be reformed, I think that it's probably helpful to kind of locate us in terms of. Um, Where we are in the broader christian structure and so to do that i think that it's probably a good idea to back up and talk about evangelicalism first and so that's where we're going to start so we're part of a denomination that has evangelical in the name um and i i think for most people in this church um, evangelical is probably a stronger marker of who you are than presbyterian or reformed or whatever else right evangelical is probably something that people hold much uh, more closely because we tend to think of evangelicalism as um, evangelicals are those that hold to the great truths of the faith. These are people that are um, creedal. We're going to get to some stuff where maybe that's not necessarily true, although um, I don't have any problem being identified as an evangelical, and I think that's a totally legitimate um, category. But the, the, the main thing I want you to get out of this discussion of evangelicalism is that it's not enough to just be called evangelical because that's actually kind of a low bar, and we'll get to this later, but evangelical is something that's descriptive of a group of people that already exist, and it's not really prescribing or, or um, giving parameters for what it means to be evangelical. So evangelicalism, for example, shifts and changes depending on what this group thinks, and it's more of a sociopolitical marker than it is a theological marker, although we'll get to these theological marks. But again, at the same time, I don't have any problem being identified as evangelical. I think that's a totally um, legitimate thing. And it's probably a helpful thing for outsiders too to be to recognize that we are evangelical Christians versus some other kind of Christian. Um, so a little bit of history on that. Um, evangelicalism comes out of basically three big movements over the course of about 150 to 200 years. So the first key movement, and this is all happening in the English-speaking world, so um, there, evangelicals in other parts of the world don't really exist until the 20th century, with the exception of maybe Lutherans in Germany. They were called evangelicals before this, but <clears throat> the first Great Awakening, which was in the 1700s in colonial America mostly, although there was certainly some stuff going on in England as well, um, the first Great Awakening was a revival of, of conviction, a revival of um, deep experiential faith where people were actually committed to their faith. Um, and this was something it involved traveling preachers. So George Whitfield uh, was one of these big traveling preachers that traveled around. Um, a lot of the founding fathers knew George Whitfield and really liked George Whitfield. Ben Franklin, who was not a Christian, uh, liked to listen to George Whitfield because he was a good speaker. and so ben, ben Franklin was not a big fan of his theology. Ben Franklin was a deist. and um, f- frankly, Ben Franklin was Probably an atheist by by our standards, um, but he loved to listen to George Whitfield because George Whitfield can supposedly be heard from a mile away. Is was the the story, um, and Whitfield uh, was kind of the the he was British and he came to America and traveled around and did these revival tours, and he was one of the the main figures here and he's he's the one that's probably most remembered. Um, more locally, Jonathan Edwards was who was he was the pastor of the Northampton Church in Massachusetts, and they had a small revival in Northampton that kind of spilled over into the rest of the world. The other big character was John Wesley, who is the founder of Methodism. Um, He was an Arminian, he was not a Calvinist, Whitfield and Edward were both Calvinists, Um, but John Wesley traveled with his brother Charles, and they also did this revivalistic traveling preacher thing. Um, A lot of our hymns, we, we sing lots of Charles Wesley hymns, And so a lot of the great hymns of the faith that we have come to love come from this first great awakening period, particularly with Charles Wesley, Isaac Watts, people like that. And by and large, the first great awakening was a good thing. Um, It it revived the faith of America. It it kind of made America a Christian place um, and helped inform the way that America would kind of form later on through the revolution um, and into the 19th century. It was also mostly Reformed theology. George Whitfield was a—we don't have these in America—but he was a Calvinistic Methodist, um, so which means he was he, Reformed theology. But he was part of the Methodist Church in England and Wales. Edwards was a Congregationalist, um, and so he was also um, big into Puritan Reformed theology. And so the theology of these guys we would mostly agree with. It'd be something that we hold to. Um, they would be very similar. They wouldn't hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, but they would have very, very similar doctrinal standards to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so this is the first big movement where we start to see the ideas of evangelicalism um, come forth and and kind of develop. And this is where the the word evangelical comes from the word for gospel, evangelion. And so this evangelism, the evangelistic fervor of the First Great Awakening kind of sparked this movement. So we fast forward a little less than 100 years, and everybody is kind of recovering from the the First Great Awakening, and that was a great boom of uh, expressive, vibrant Christianity. And there were people in the Second Great Awakening that that wanted to kind of revive this, and so they, they started doing this revivalistic preaching, they started traveling around. But the theology of the Second Great Awakening was significantly different from the theology of the First Great Awakening. And so the key figures that I have listed here, Charles Finney, who was a Presbyterian, but Charles Finney was also an Arminian, and um, he invented the altar call. So uh, Charles Finney, it was actually called the anxious bench. And so what he would do is he would preach, and if you felt anxious about your salvation, he would say, come forward and sit on the anxious bench. And that was the genesis of our modern altar call. Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell started the Churches of Christ. They were both also Presbyterians, um, but they started the Restorationist movement. So this idea of the Churches of Christ, if you're familiar with that, um, they're all about going back to the early church, what the early church did, what the church in the Book of Acts did. And so they come out with some kind of weird theology. Um, they don't use instruments in worship, and that's actually coming from Presbyterian theology. Presbyterians at this time would not have used instruments in worship. Um, they have very strict rules about church government. They, um, um, it's, it's kind of this, the, the simplest expression, this kind of um, folk religion type of thing, this, this kind of country um, religion that developed out of the rural areas and was um, really focused on biblicism over what was traditional Protestant reform theology. The other one uh, is Francis Asbury, who was another of these traveling preachers, but he was very much like Charles Finney except he was on the Methodist side of things. And so, all of these figures, among many, many others, um, were involved in the Second Great Awakening. Now, interestingly, um, this was opposed by most confessional Presbyterians. So, as a matter of fact, this church, in 1837, there was a split in the Presbyterian Church in America, and this church was part of the Old School Presbyterian Church which was opposed to this revivalistic thing that was going on. The main reason they were opposed to it was because um, it took away from the ordinary means of grace. And so traditional Reformed theology says um, the word of God preached, the sacraments, the church that we are a part of, all of these things are the ordinary means of God's grace, and we don't want to, re- want to rely on things like revivals, on things like really expressive music to stir up emotions, to stir up a fervor to get people to convert. And so they they leaned on this this idea that now the word of god is what has converting power versus these other things that we can do these tent revivals these now they they wouldn't have anything against preaching in a tent on a monday but it was the overall um timbre of the of the whole thing that they had struggles with and that included this church in the 1830s so Uh, the second great awakening also produced a variety of heterodox and heretical groups so um it, it was a very similar thing to the Stone-Campbell movement, which birthed the Churches of Christ. Um, so they're looking to go back to like the primitive faith, the faith of the early church, the faith of the Book of Acts. Um, and they're, just using, they're not using like historical sources to do that. They're just looking at the Bible. And similar things happened with Seventh-day Adventists. So Seventh-day Adventists come out of the Second Great Awakening. Um, the Mormons come out of the Second Great Awakening. Um, all these different, Christian science is a little bit later, but it's one of these similar um, things. And so all these little groups that we would consider heretical or heterodox, which means not quite in line with Christian teaching, are coming out of this second great awakening. And that's another reason that um, confessional Protestants, confessional Presbyterians and other Protestants tended to push back on this a little bit. And so if you're familiar with the name Charles Hodge, Charles Hodge was a great Princeton theologian, and we we talk about him a lot uh, still in American Presbyterianism. He was on the front lines pushing it back against the Second Great Awakening. But the Second Great Awakening did have a huge impact on evangelicalism, and eventually, when the Old School and New School Presbyterians reunited, um, there was kind of a mix there, and they came to a moderate view versus just flat out rejecting the revivalism or or all out embracing it, they were kind of moderating it. Um, That happened a couple different times. It also happened, there was also a split in the Presbyterian Church during the First Great Awakening, and that's called the New Side, Old Side controversy. And it was a similar thing, there was a pushback against this revivalism. But it was not as as strong a break as it was in the Second Great Awakening. So you had the First Great Awakening, this was in the 1700s, pre-revolution America, colonial America. Fast forward about 100 years, you have the Second Great Awakening, which is more fervor, more revivalistic, more expressive, producing these other groups. But also in the 19th century, you have the develop of higher criticism, the develop of modernism, and um, a lot of seminaries are moving to the left; they're becoming more liberal. And you have guys like BB Warfield at Princeton, Jay Gresham Machen, and William Jennings Bryan, who was a politician. He was the Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson. Um, guys like this who were pushing back against modernism in the church, and they focused on what was called the five fundamentals: so biblical inspiration, the virgin birth, the atoning nature of Christ's death, the bodily resurrection in the historicity of Christ's miracles. So when liberal scholarship was kind of coming about, um, this was really happening like the 1880s was when it was kind of gaining a lot of um, influence in American seminaries. Um, This group called the Fundamentalists pushed back against that and said, okay, here's what you need to believe to be a Christian, biblical inspiration, virgin birth. And these five fundamentals became what uh, kind of litmus tests for determining whether or not you were a liberal or not. So um, if you could answer these questions, if you could say, if you ask a liberal, is the Bible inspired, they're gonna give you a waffly answer, right? And the fundamentalist would say, yes. And so if you could affirm these five things, and that, for the fundamentalist, that was what made you a Christian, what made you uh, you know, affirm, if you could affirm these things, then you were, you were solid, you were good, and so we could trust you. Um, so several things happened out of, out of this controversy. Um, Westminster Theological Seminary was founded and Jay Gresham Machen was involved in that, that's in Philadelphia. Um, this was more of an issue in the North and the South, um, they're pretty much solid on a lot of these things, but um, there are lots of these debates. And a lot of this stuff happened in the South, basically 50 years later. So, um, in the 70s for example, Reformed Theological Seminary was founded in response to some of the same things going on in the South that happened in the North. Um, A couple of interesting things about some of these people. Um, William Jennings Bryan, I put him here because he was just a layman. He was not a uh, clergyman, but he was a lawyer. And he was the Secretary of State for Woodrow Wilson. But he's also probably most famous for being involved in the Scopes Monkey Trial. Are You guys familiar with that? So in Tennessee, he was the um, prosecutor for the teacher who was teaching evolution. And so there's a strong rejection among fundamentalists of evolution, of uh, old earth, of higher criticism. And there was this idea that these scientific ideas went along with higher criticism. And you know, they've kind of proven to be right about that. Maybe you can debate about me, with me about that. But uh, the fundamentalists also gained this reputation, though, for being kind of feisty. And um, they always had their claws out They were always ready to fight. And so lots of fundamentalists, so-called, after World War II began to kind of distance themselves from that label and the word evangelical became more prominent. So evangelical was always a word that was going around, that was getting used, but the fundamentalist movement kind of morphed into the evangelical movement after World War II, and um, it was basically a mild-mannered version of what fundamentalism was. But also with all this background of um, the First Great Awakening and Second Great Awakening. And so all of that kind of coalesces together and we get evangelicalism um, on the other side of World War II. Any questions or comments at that point? I'm moving really fast through that, but I I always say that. I always say that I'm moving fast, and, you know, I guess I am, but. So now that we've kind of looked at the history, let's think about a definition. So the standard academic definition for evangelicalism is the Bebbington quadrilateral, I can't remember Bevington's first name, but he's a a British professor. He studied this stuff. And he said, these four characteristics are what makes it evangelical. Conversion, a commitment to conversion, or the belief that lives need to be changed. The Bible, or the belief that all spiritual truth is to be found in its pages. Activism, or the dedication of all believers, including lay people, to lives of service for God, especially as manifest in evangelism and mission, And crucicentrism, or the conviction that Christ's death was the crucial matter in providing atonement for sin, that is, providing reconciliation between a holy God and sinful humans. Now, on the surface of that, I agree with all that. And I'm sure that most of you do, too, if not all of you, right? Um, But what you'll notice about that is that there's something that's really kind of conspicuously missing from this definition. Is anything jumping out at you? (laughs) <laughs> right, the gospel, right? The gospel is not part of it, right? So we ha- we do have this idea that the cross is important or whatever, but uh, there- there's no offer of the gospel involved in this. Uh, there's no um, explanation of like what Christ's death actually does for us before God. There's just this idea that the cross is important, right? And so if you look on page two, I've got a list of people that would qualify as evangelicals, and this is not a comprehensive list by any means, but i um, certainly conservative Presbyterians, which we are. Southern Baptists are evangelicals according to this definition. Oneness Pentecostals who believe in a heretical version of the Trinity. Open evangelicals, these are liberal evangelicals that believe that, you know they would they would meet these criteria, but they believe, for example, that gay marriage is okay, that um, all sorts of this gender ideology is okay. they're they're okay with um, things like that. You know, they're They're much more liberal socially than we would be. There are evangelical Catholics. There are Catholics who believe that you know the gospel needs to go out to the nations and um, that lives need to be changed and all that stuff. That's that's the category of people. Seventh-day Adventists. We talked about them earlier, right? They have an additional uh, book of kind of scripture that they use. Same thing with Mormons. That's a heretical group that we would not consider Christians. And prosperity preachers. You know, Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, those kind of guys, are considered evangelicals according to this definition. And so. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is that while I have no problem with the, with the word evangelical, I have no problem with identifying as an evangelical because I think it's an accurate descriptor of what uh, I am, what we are, it's not actually that helpful in figuring out where we fit in the world. Because the word evangelical, it's it's like saying, um, you know, American or, or white. Like it puts you in a, in a big category of people that are all sorts of different people together. Does that make sense? And so, It's not really enough to just say, I'm evangelical, I'm an evangelical Christian, because lots of people can say that, and it doesn't really mean a whole lot for how they live their lives, what they believe, how they read the Bible, things like that. Um, Mark Knoll uh, is is a guy that's written a lot about this. His book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, is very popular, um, and it's it's kind of a, a popularized version of one of his bigger academic works. And so, some of you may have read that, I don't know, but... He summarizes, he summarizes um, evangelicalism this way: these core evangelical commitments have never been by themselves have never by themselves yielded cohesive, institutionally compact, or clearly demarcated groups of Christians. But they do serve to identify a large kin network of churches, voluntary societies, books and periodicals, personal networks, and emphasis of belief and practice. So uh, evangelicalism, and this is what I've got right here, is an ideological identifier with cultural and socio-political ramifications. So it's, it's more descriptive than it is prescriptive. So it's, it's a designation ex post facto, which means it's, it's after the fact. So we've got a group of people and we have to identify them somehow, and we're, we're applying this label to a group of people after they've already formed. Reformed is the opposite. It's a prescriptive standard, right? So we have, and we'll talk about this in a minute, we have these confessions of faith in the reformed world, and these confessions of faith define what it is to be reformed, and to be reformed, you conform yourself to those confessions of faith, right? So it's the exact opposite, and so the same way that um, evangelicalism can change and morph depending on what evangelicals do, uh, reformed theology doesn't do that, right? Because we have a written document that defines what reformed theology is. So, um, you know, you may think that's good or bad, that's a different discussion, but um that's that's very important for for making the distinctions because i don't know if ha, have any of you met a mormon missionary recently they they're they're around a little bit but um, the the new strategy of mormon missionaries is not to try to convince you to become a uh, mormon the new strategy is to convince you that they're christians and so if you meet a mormon they're not going to say you need to read the book of mormon they're going to start with oh don't you know that we're actually christians you know, a lot of Christians don't realize that we're, that we're one of you. And, you know, we have the same Bible, and we sing the same songs and, and all that stuff, right? And it's, it's a misdirection, but by this definition, they can pull out things like, well, I believe the Bible is true. I believe that the gospel is important. I believe that Jesus died for our sins. And they can pull all that stuff out. But if you start to dig deeper into what that actually means, it, it doesn't line up with, with biblical truth. So that, that's why this is important, because... Um, we don't want to stake our, our flag on something that's kind of shifting and moving, um, although it may be an accurate descriptor of, of who we are. So are there any questions about that, thoughts, concerns? Okay. So this is, what we've called this uh, study beyond TULIP, and before I, I talk about more about reform theology, it's important to talk about TULIP, because in America, in the evangelical world, What it means to be reformed is to hold to these five doctrines. Now, I'm going to contend that that's not actually the case. That doesn't make you reformed is to to hold to TULIP. But that's why somebody like John MacArthur, who is a great preacher, who is a solid, uh, good Christian man, um, he's often considered reformed, but that's just because of his doctrine of salvation. He doesn't actually hold to a reformed confession of faith, and his, his reformed theology doesn't really extend beyond his doctrine of salvation. And so what I'm arguing for is a more robust Reformed theology, a Reformed theology that's based in um, historical confessions, historical uh, tradition that's passed down from, to us from the Reformation. Um, and that's not what is often meant by reformed in, um, America, in the American world. Um, a second thing to note about, the, about TULIP is TULIP comes from the canons of Dort, which was Formulated these canons were formulated at the Synod of Dort, which was in the it's in the Netherlands, and they were dealing with the followers of this guy named Jacobus Arminius, and Arminius, for the most part, denied these five points, and so the purpose of the Synod of Dort was to clarify these points and was to um, make them clear over against Arminianism. Now. The problem with that is if we're defining our theology as opposed to something else, we're going to leave things out. And so I think part of the problem with people that people have with Reformed theology is they look at these five points and they think, if that's what you believe about salvation, I'm not interested. right? If you believe that Jesus didn't die for everybody, I'm not interested, which is what limited atonement means. But there's a much bigger picture that all these things fit into. I'm, I'm not saying that none of these are, these are all true, and I'm not saying that they're not true. But... We have to place that in context of a bigger doctrine of salvation. And we're, going to talk about, we're not going to talk about that, this, about that this week, but we'll talk about that um, in the future. But it is important that we know these because we're going to get questions about these. Um, and, and that's what most of the time when I'm, I meet somebody that's, you know, um, I've, I grew up Baptist. I'm around a lot of Baptists. So I meet Baptists that think this. I, meet, um, I have lots of Methodist friends who disagree with me on this. The first thing they ask about is tulip, right? They're not interested in, you know, sometimes they ask about the baptism thing, but most important to them is the tulip thing. And um, so we we get get questions about this and it's important to know um, how how to answer these things. And we're not gonna get too much into this now, but um, we'll just run through these and I'll give like a very brief overview of why we think this. So the, the T is total depravity, which is the doctrine that man is dead in sin and incapable of salvation apart from grace. So we get this from places like Romans 3, right? Uh, we're dead in sin, uh, and we're unable to get grace without you know, God's work. Uh, the second is unconditional election, the doctrine that God ordains salvation for individuals apart from their own merits. So the scripture right write down from this is Romans 9. Um, Romans 9, in fact, let's. I'll open it up. I was trying to move fast with this, but I, I can't, so. We're going to go to Romans 9. <clears throat> um, and now Romans 9 is, is, is in context of a larger book, right? And there's lots of things going on. But Paul makes very clear that salvation is on the part of God's unconditional election apart from works. So if we go to um, Romans 9, chap- uh, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebecca... Had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so it's very clear before Esau and Jacob were born, God had made a decision about how he was going to handle these two guys. Now, I see some faces, but so we'll have to unpack what that means, and we'll, we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks on um, what it means that that he loved Jacob and hated Esau. Um, uh, the brief answer is, I can say something like, "I love Mexican food." Okay, but if I hate tamales, right? Am I, am I lying when I say I love Mexican food? No, right. So that's that's a short answer, and that's probably unsatisfying, but. Um, We'll talk about that more in detail later. So total depravity, we're dead in sin and unable to save ourselves, unconditional election. Next is limited atonement. So uh, limited atonement, and this is often framed in terms of Jesus didn't die for everybody, which um, is true in a sense, although it doesn't really capture what we're going for here. But um, limited atonement is actually the doctrine that Christ's death actually achieves the salvation of those whom God has elected. So Christ dies, um, not just hypothetically to save people, but to actually save people. And when Jesus died, God knew who He was going to save, and Jesus' death actually atoned for those people. It's not just a hypothetical thing that we can somehow grasp later in life. It's actually something that is that is sure and a sure foundation. There's lots of scriptures for that. That's going to take a longer discussion. Um, we'll go back to that in a minute, but or in, in the coming weeks. Fourth, irresistible grace, the doctrine that the Holy Spirit's regenerative work is in God's elect is always effectual. So if God has decided to save you, if God um, is intending to save you, then the Holy Spirit will save you. There's nothing that you can do to stop God from saving you. Well, there's lots of stuff in John about that. John 6, John 8 talks about how the Holy Spirit works in that. Um, and so those are scriptures right time for that. And finally, perseverance of the saints. Um, it's the doctrine that God's elect will ultimately be faithful to the end. This one is the easiest for people to believe um, because it's, it's the least concerning. It's, it's the most comforting of all these. Um, uh, on the surface, at least, I think as we unpack some of this it'll be clear that that's, um, they're all comforting and all, all good things, but. Um, so that's Tulip, um, but like I said, that, that doesn't really convey the Reformed doctrine of salvation in its entirety. The Reformed doctrine of salvation is, is much more rich than that, and um, it's drawing off a deep well of biblical sources and also um, Christian reflection on those biblical sources for hundreds of years. Um, and so I'm not going to spend too much more time on that because I, I'll probably spend a whole hour on that um, in the next week or so. Uh, just as I probably should have said this at the beginning, what, the, the way that we're going to do this is. I'm going over this history stuff, this broad overview stuff right now. But um, where I'm gonna turn next is actually worship. And the reason for that is, if you were on the ground in the Reformation, we'll talk about this in a second too, but if you were on the ground during the Reformation, if you lived in Switzerland in 1518, the first experience you would have with the Reformation would be worship, right? So if you think about how worship was done, and we'll talk about this in more detail next week too, but um, worship was done completely in Latin. Worship was done um, where the priest was completely facing the other direction. So the priest would have stood and turned. He would have been talking like this the whole time to get to the wall. All in Latin. And imagine you come into church one week and the, and the priest is standing like this. He's facing you. He's talking to you. And he's speaking your language. Like how radical of a change that would be. Um, and so that's the experience of the average person on the ground in the Reformation, and so we're going, to, we're going to start there, and we're going to work from there to our doctrine of salvation, our doctrine of the sacraments, and our doctrine of uh, culture and political life and things like that um, from there. So that's just a preview of what, where we're going. Um, and partially, I also just really want to talk about worship. I'm very passionate about that, so that's, <laughs> that's one of my favorite things to talk about. So um, it's good to frame things in terms of that. So that's TULIP. <clears throat> now let's talk about what it means to be reformed. So we talked about evangelicalism. We talked about the caricature of reformed theology that is TULIP. Um, again, not, I'm not saying that TULIP is wrong or bad, um, but it's not an accurate picture of, of what, um, what we believe in, in, its, in its entirety. It's accurate insofar as it's correct, but it's not accurate in so far as it gives us a full picture of what we believe. So on page three, you'll see this big chart and I've, the heading says, an extremely simplified and misleading family tree. Um, I say that because we, we use these things to kind of represent relationships between all sorts of uh, churches. And this is probably really small and hard to see because our, our printer's out, so this was originally in color, and it's not now. But um, we have this idea that Protestantism broke away from Roman Catholicism. And that Protestantism was like we were all faithful Roman Catholics and then you know, John Calvin and Martin Luther and all these other guys came in and they had radically changed the church. In some ways they did, but they radically changed the church and they broke off from the Pope of Rome in, in this you know, grand gesture. But that's not the reality of what was happening on the ground. If you were a church member in England, for example, in the 1500s, you probably wouldn't notice anything besides some minor changes in worship for many, many years. Um, you, know, you know, we have this, these pictures of all our pastors downstairs in the fellowship hall. If you go to a church in England, they don't have pictures of this, but hypothetically, let's say they had pictures like this in, in their churches of, of all their pastors. It would just roll straight through the 1500s like nothing happened. Because, um, you know, we, we live in a hyper-connected world and it's hard for us to, to understand what this was like. Um, the pope never talked to you, right? Like, you know, the pope existed, but we have all these interviews with the pope. And, you, know, he's, you know, we always know what's going on. And we know when the pope dies and when, when the pope gets replaced and everything. Um, if you were an average church member in the 1500s, you would have no idea about any of that. Um, you would be aware that there was some guy in Rome that was real important, but in terms of your day-to-day Christian life, it wouldn't really make much of a difference. And so part of the argument of the Protestant Reformation was, and particularly, this was really strong in the English Reformation, It's not so much that we're breaking away from the, the Roman church. The argument was more, we're just changing the way our church runs, right? The, the Roman Pope doesn't really have any authority over us, and that's, that's something that's actually in the Church of England's um, Confession of Faith, or Articles of Religion is what they call it. It says, the, the Pope of Rome hath no jurisdiction in England, right? <laughs> he's, he's in Rome, he's in Italy, he has nothing to do with us, and, you know, sometimes we write letters back and forth, but that's the extent of our relationship. And it's really the pastors and the bishops and, and the, the church people here that have a say over what happens in England, right? Now, of course, we're beholden to the Bible. We're, we're, we're kind of guarded by the traditions of the church and, and what the Bible says, but that, that guy over there doesn't really have much to say to us. Right. Now, when they started to say that kind of thing, he sent armies to invade, right? But, and there were wars fought, particularly in Switzerland, over, over this whole thing. But they didn't see themselves as, as doing some sort of break from the church. Uh, they saw themselves in continuity with the church. And they, were, uh, they were attempting to reform the churches in their communities that they lived with and the people they were with, um, according to the Bible. Um, But they also wouldn't deny that they were somehow sprouting out of Roman Catholicism. So they wouldn't think of themselves as um, heirs of the Roman Catholic system of doctrine, right? They would say, you know, we're kind of our own thing. We're we're not just changing stuff that Rome did. We're actually, you know, we're in continuity with the church, we're in continuity with the church's tradition, but we're we're not in the same tradition as Rome. Um, You also have to, we also think of these things in terms of like big key events, that's how we like visualize history. We have to understand that um, this was a long process and there were people, you know, there were people that we would have considered like reformed by our standards in the 1200s, right? 300 years for the Reformation. Um, transubstantiation, the doctrine that the, the reformers were vehemently against in communion, which is the idea that the, the bread and the wine become the body blood of Christ, Christ literally that idea in the Roman Catholic Church was not codified until 1215. And so you could believe, for example, a Calvinist view of the Lord's Supper up until 1215 in the Roman Catholic Church and it was totally fine. And so we, we think that like, oh, there's this big monolithic thing we're, we're fighting against, but that's not really what happened. It's, it's coming out of a pre-existing set of controversies. So there was some pre-Reformation stuff in the Czech Republic Uh, what was called Bohemia with John Huss. There was some pre-Reformation stuff with John Wycliffe in England where they were kind of developing these ideas, but they didn't have the reach that they had in the Reformation. And there were people that were totally in line with with the church, totally okay with the church, who believed a lot of these things about uh, faith and works, about uh, scripture, about the sacraments, all of these things um, as late as the 1200s and even all through that, although they were against the church by that point. So all that to say, uh, we, we don't want to think of ourselves in terms of like against Catholicism, as as people that, you know, and th- this is the tendency, and there's lots of people even today in the reform world that do this. They, they say, here's who we are as opposed to Roman Catholicism. Here's why we're not Roman Catholic. We're we're reformed because we're not Roman Catholic, and that's, that's the wrong way to think about things. Instead, we want to present a positive um, structure of what we believe, right? We, we don't want to just say, you know, we're going to take these things out of Roman Catholicism and, and that's our theology. No, we actually have a full-throated system of, of thought, of a full-throated tradition that's being passed down that um, is important for us to, to recognize and to, to present as it is uh, on its own terms versus in terms of something that we don't like, right? Now, that's not to say that we're not a post-Roman Catholicism, we are, there's a, <laughs> there's a distinction and controversies there, but um, that's an important distinction to make. But I, again, these family trees are not very helpful because they don't really represent what we're, what um, the reformers or any of us are, are trying to do or, or what it means to be um, one of these groups of people. Any questions or thoughts or comments there? So let's talk about Scripture and tradition. Now, when we talk about the Reformation, we, we talk in terms of the, the traditional languages, the material cause and the formal cause. So the thing that started the Reformation off was um, guys like Martin Luther, guys like Ulrich Zwingli, guys like um, Heinrich Bullinger, these, these people across Europe, started to read the Bible. And there are reasons for this. That this is probably the first time a lot of them had access to a Greek Bible. Um, because they were very expensive and hard to print, and the printing press was now a thing, so they could have access to this. Um, and so, for example, one of, the, one of the primary examples of this is when Martin Luther is reading um, How to Be Saved. The Latin Vulgate, which is a decent translation, um, when you get to the part where Peter is telling you how to be saved in, in Acts, and he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. The Latin Vulgate translates that do penance and be baptized. And so the idea is that I have to do something to be saved. right I have to make up for my sins to be saved. But that's not what the Greek says. And people like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli recognized that and said, you know we've got this mixed up because we're, we haven't read the Bible well. Um, and so that's, that's what sparked this um, reformation was this question about the formal cause. But the real issue, the real problem, was what's called the or I have that backwards, I think. No, I don't have it backwards. The material cause, the material cause of the Reformation, is the question of scripture and tradition, the question of authority. Um, Who do we trust? Who is um, the authority over our faith and morals? And by extension, there's something called the Roman Catholic Magisterium, which is the community of all the bishops in the world is what what they call the magisterium, and they have some teaching authority. And what the Reformation was saying, in essence, was that no, the Roman Catholic magisterium does not have infallible authority over the church. And they they had a more nuanced view of scripture and tradition. And so there's basically, over the course of Christian history, there's basically three views of tradition and scripture and their relationship. The one, and I've got them kind of backwards on this sheet, but the prevailing view of the medieval Roman Catholic Church was what's called Tradition two. And this is the idea that Scripture and tradition are two different sources with two different content, right? So there's some stuff that we know from Scripture, and there's some stuff that we know from tradition, and we need Scripture and tradition together to tell us how to be Christians. That's the view of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. The Reformation kind of produced two views. On the one hand, you had what we call the radical reformers, and they're most prevalent today in terms of like the Amish. So this is where the Amish come from is the radical reformers. They held what's been called tradition zero, the idea that tradition has no bearing on us at all, that we just take our Bible, we go off by ourselves with no other reference, and we read the Bible, and that's that's how we determine what, what God wants us to do. The magisterial reformers, which is magisterial in terms of um, they were in line with the mainstream, and they were on the side of, for example, the, the kings and the princes were on their team. The magisterial reformers held that scripture and tradition are two modes of tradition. So I have big T tradition, right, and little t tradition. Big T tradition is the tradition of the church, and little t tradition is what is passed down. And so they would say scripture is materially sufficient and tradition provides the correct or at least helpful interpretations of scripture. So for example, scripture does not use the word trinity, but we believe the doctrine of the trinity because scripture teaches it. Now, how do we do that? It's because the tradition of the church, the church in the past has unpacked this stuff and has come up with the best way to talk about God. The best way to describe how Jesus is God and how God is actually one in essence and how God is also three persons. And the church has talk, has thought about that based on scripture and come to these conclusions. And so the, the Reformation has, has actually not been opposed to tradition. The Reformation has embraced tradition. And in fact, part of the argument of the Reformation was not that, we're breaking tradition, but we're actually going back to an older tradition that's closer to the apostles and that's more representative of what Jesus taught. And so we'll get there in a minute. I do have some quotes from some church fathers that kind of give you a sampling of this. But um, tradition two, which is the medieval Roman Catholic view, was codified by the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent in session four of the Council of Trent. And so this is this is the key text in the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, Magisterium to, to understand this, so they say this truth and discipline are contained in the written books and the unwritten traditions, which received by the which which received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself, or the or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictative have come dictating have come down even to us, transmitted as it were from hand to hand. Which by the way, that, that's what the word trans, uh, tradition means—that it was passed down hand to hand. Now, modern Roman Catholics, you know, after about the 70s, have attempted to reinterpret this in terms of tradition one. And the primary reason is because they understand that tradition one, the idea that scripture and tradition are intended to go together, they're not opposed to each other, and it's not like scripture is insufficient. So they wanna say now that scripture is actually sufficient and that tradition interprets scripture for us. Um, that is problematic because it's not actually what they're getting at here. In fact, the original draft of this said that, that the truth and discipline are contained partly in the written books and partly in the unwritten traditions. So they had this debate about whether or not to include the word partly. And they eventually didn't include it, but it was clear that the tradition to view was the predominant view in the late Middle Ages in the Catholic Church. The Protestants, on the other side of that coin, honor tradition, recognize its authority, but insist that all authority is is subordinate to the word of God. So this is what they say about church councils and church synods in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 31. It belongs to synods and councils ministerially to determine controversies of faith and cases of conscience, to set down rules and directions for the better ordering of the public worship of God and the government of his church, to receive complaints and cases of maladministration and authoritatively to determine the same which decrees and determinations, if consonant to the Word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for the agreement with the Word, but also for the power whereby they are made, being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in His Word. So the idea is the church actually has real power and real authority over you. And where the church is in line with Scripture, we are called to submit to the church, submit to tradition, submit to the way the decisions that the church makes. However, it always must be subordinate to the word of God. And in fact, if we go to chapter one of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which I don't have in here, it says the final interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. So the, the way we determine the meaning of scripture is not by looking to some outside source, but to, to look deeper into scripture. And as it turns out, you know, we believe in the tradition of apostles. We believe in the idea that apostles handed things down. But we also believe that they wrote down what they intended to hand down, and that we have that now in the Bible. And so there's a, a tight relationship between tradition and scripture. So, for example, um, the Apostles' Creed is a tradition. It's a rule of faith. But it comes directly from scripture. through It's, it's mediated and rearranged and all this sort of stuff. But the, the Apostles' Creed is something that is biblical at its core. But we're also not supposed to be interpreting scripture against the, the Apostles' Creed because the church has set that out as something that is um, authoritative and true. But it's not authoritative and true because the church has said, said that it's authoritative and true. It's authoritative and true because it is authoritative and true according to the word of God. Does that make sense? That's kind of, that's kind of it is a little bit circular, but that's kind of the point, right? And this is, this is the thing that Roman Catholics will lob against Protestants, that this is circular reasoning, right? How do you you say that the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true, right? That's a big circle. And to that we say, yes, because the Holy Spirit has convicted us that the Bible is true. And we had outside reasons, and this is, um, our confession says this, and Calvin talks a lot about this in the beginning of his Institutes. Um, we have these outside reasons. We have the testimony of the church. We have the testimony of the apostles. We have the, um, the historical record of, this, of these books being passed down. But ultimately, it's the work of the Holy Spirit which convinces us that Scripture is true. No, matter, no, no amount of proof that you can pile up, no amount, no amount of evidence, can convince an unregenerate person who's against God that his word is true. And so we rely on the Holy Spirit and we rely on Scripture to set the standard for us above all else. And so this is the the core of the Protestant argument, is that we believe Scripture is true no matter what. We believe that Scripture is the standard by which we live our lives and we order our churches. And so Scripture, not tradition, not what the Pope says, not what um, some early church father says, although we, we revere and honor those people and we respect what they have to say. But if they say something contrary to the word of God, then we have to go with, we have to go with the word of God. That's how it goes. But, I, you know, I say we have, if they say something contrary to the word of God, then we have to go against them. But I've, I've left a few quotes here of early church fathers that say some interesting things about scripture. And these are the kind of quotes why modern Catholics want to go back and kind of revise what um, the Council of Trent says. So the first one's from Irenaeus. He was a disciple of Polycarp who was a disciple of John. So he knew a guy who knew John, the, the Apostle John, who wrote the, the Gospel of John. He says, We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those who, through whom the Gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the Scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So Irenaeus, this is a guy in the 100s A.D., like 100 years after Jesus, is saying the reason that we believe what we believe is because the Bible says it. And the the apostles have handed it down to us in scriptures. Not verbally, because the verbal word is, is less reliable for a variety of reasons. No, they've handed it down to us in scripture. Another guy, he's just a little bit later, Clement of Alexandria. He says, but those who are ready to toil in the most excellent pursuits will not desist from the search after truth till they get to the demonstrations until they get the demonstration from the Scriptures themselves. So he's saying the final arbiter in truth, above all else, is Scripture. And if Scripture doesn't tell us that it's true, then we can't have ultimate certainty. The ultimate certainty that we have comes from Scripture and Scripture alone. The next guy, Hippolytus, he's in the 300s. There is, brethren, one God, the knowledge of whom we gain from the Holy Scriptures and from no other source. That's a big statement. Just for just as a man, if he wishes to be skilled in the wisdom of the world, will find himself unable to get at it any other way than by mastering the dogmas of the philosophers. So all of us who wish to practice piety will be unable to learn its practice from any other quarter than the oracles or the word of God. And so these are people in the first three, four hundred years of the church who knew people who knew the apostles, who... If, if, if anybody knew that the apostles had handed down some tradition separate from Scripture, these guys would know. Irenaeus knew somebody who knew John, and he's, he spent time with this guy. And Polycarp, the disciple of John, taught Irenaeus. And if Irenaeus knew about some other tradition that, that John had not written down, then we would probably hear about it, and he probably wouldn't say this, that the only source is Scripture. And so we rely on that as our source, we rely on that as our standard. And this is not something that is made up in the 1500s. This is something that has been a part of the church forever, and it's something that the early church fathers, the earliest church, held to. And so we're not, we're not just breaking from tradition. We're actually going back and we're saying, no, the church has always said this. This is not something that, that we're making up. This is something the church has always said. So we start from this view of Scripture, but we also, all the Reformed churches, moving to the last point here, have a confessional standard, have some subordinate standard, which tells us, In this church this is how we interpret the scriptures in the wake of the reformation it was clear the Reformed theology was clarified with confessions of faith and they are the essence of the reformed faith so to be reformed is to hold to one of these confessions and to be a part of a confessional body so in the same way you know a lot of times we people in america particularly will say i'm reformed and they're referring to an ideological identity but you wouldn't say, for example, that you're Catholic if you weren't a part of the Catholic Church. You wouldn't say you were a Lutheran if you weren't a part of the Lutheran Church, for example. And so part of the argument that I'm putting forth is to be reformed is to hold one of these confessions and be, be submit to it under the authority of a reformed church. And um, it's, it's not an ideological marker, although there's certainly ideological things in, in theology that we hold to. But um, it's, it's first and foremost a commitment to a, a community of faith and the tradition of faith, and the people that you're sitting next to at church on Sunday. So, does that all make sense? I feel like that was, that was a really fast, like, shotgun blast of information. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot of Bible there. But next week, we're going to spend basically the whole time in the Bible. So, <laughs> any questions, comments, concerns as we finish up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it happened. This, <laughs> but and that's that's very characteristic of, of Presbyterians. So, um, yeah. Uh, well, not actually. So, if you, you ever heard of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church? They are Armenian. They're not Reformed. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. They're not. So, and they wouldn't even hold to it. They, they they wouldn't even claim it. The PCUSA would claim that they were reformed, but the Cumberland Presbyterian Church would would not. So, they're not very big anymore. Um, but there is Enon Cumberland Presbyterian Church in Ackerman It's still still around. Columbus has one. So, but yeah. So, I've never been to a Cumberland Church, but they they are Armenian. So, which is an interesting. They're Presbyterian because they hold to the same government that we have, but. Um, by and large, at least with the exception of a couple of small groups, um, Presbyterians are Reformed, and they come out of this this line um, by way of Scotland. So, not necessarily. Methodists are Armenian. Um, you don't have to be technically to be a Methodist, but Baptists um, can go either way. So, and in fact, if you look at like Baptists from hundred years ago. Or longer than that, 150 years ago, they were all reformed. They were all held to the London Baptist Confession of Faith. If you look at the um, the 1807 S- Mississippi Baptist Statement of Faith, it's very reformed. Um, that changed during the Second Great Awakening, but um, they used to be very reformed. And now, now it's kind of a free for all <laughs> in terms of this particular, these, some of these particular issues. Um, and the Southern Baptist Convention now is more a confederation of of loosely theologically Connected churches, it's it's less cohesive than say Presbyterians are because we have a confession of faith that we're held to, and all of our pastors are are examined on that. That's not the case in Baptist churches, so they don't have a they may have like they have the Baptist faith method me, message, which is pretty good, but you don't even actually have to hold the Baptist faith message to be a part of the Southern Baptist Convention as a, as a church. So which is you know the only the only thing that it takes to be part of the Southern Baptist Convention is that you give to the Cooperative Program and support their missions. That's it. So it's a, it's a very different world, <laughs> but any other questions? Well, let's pray. We'll pray for Boston again as he finishes up youth and then <laughs> we'll head out. Father, thank you uh, again for this day. Thank you for bringing us to the end of it. Um, would you guard us tonight, uh, protect us um, from the night and wake us tomorrow to, to serve you well. Um, would you remind us of our commitments uh, to your word, and to the primacy of your word above all else? But Father, would you also teach us to honor and uh, cherish the work of those who have gone before us and um, see the, the truth of your word in them uh, as they exposit your word, as they unpack what, what you have to say to us? And Father, most of all, would you teach us to conform to your truth, conform to your word? Would you bend our spirits to honor you and to, to love you and to love uh, the things that you say above whatever anybody else can say. Um, We pray for our youth and our children and um, the group downstairs that you would bless them and sanctify them as they go out tonight. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.